We're in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 this morning as we continue to talk about why the church is important and what kind of church we hope to be to fulfill all that the scriptures say about it because the church is a big deal in scripture, even if it's not a big deal in our culture anymore, even if it's not a big deal in the lives of a lot of Christians anymore, it is a big deal to God. Last week, we talked about how the church is the body of Christ. If Jesus is gonna do anything on earth, he's gonna do it through his body. You haven't, none of us ever see an army of angels coming down from heaven on white horses to accomplish the work of God, right? The next time we see that will be the last moment of this present era when Christ returns. I'm looking forward to it, but I'm not counting on it happening anytime soon. I know that the work of God occurs through his people, the local church, not just First Baptist Conroe, but every church that preaches Jesus as Lord no matter their denomination or title. Now, back in the Middle Ages, there was a, a young man, very devout young man, who went to pray at a little chapel. He lived in Italy. The, the nearest chapel was at San Damiano. And the chapel was literally falling apart. The, wall, the bricks were crumbling. There were holes in the walls. The priest there had, didn't even have enough oil for the lamps, so it was dark, kind of like the back of our sanctuary today. That, you know, that's total coincidence. We're going to have that fixed by next week, Lord willing. But, you know, this young man knelt to pray, and as he did, he heard for the first but not the last time in his life the audible voice of God. The voice of God said, Francesco, go and repair my house, which as you can see is being destroyed. And not knowing what else to do, he interpreted that as a call to renovate that church, that little chapel. Now, he came from a family with some money, so he was able to go out and buy bricks and mortar and trowels, and he came back and became a one-man renovation crew and started rebuilding the church there in San Damiano. Now, that young man we know today as Francis of Assisi, and he later led a great revival of the church in that era, in the Middle Ages. And that's what God was actually calling him to do. But he didn't know what else to do, so he just went to work on the church in front of him. And that's what I think God's calling us to do. If you're like me, you have a lot of mixed feelings about the American church today. I love it, I've always been a part of it, and yet I, I, she frustrates me. There, there are so many ways in which American Christianity is not fulfilling its purpose, in which we're not making the impact on our society we should, we're not living according to the teachings of Christ, we're worshiping everything but Jesus. And, and I wanna see revival happen. I can't make that happen, you can't make that happen, I hope you're praying for it to happen, but what we can do is go to work on the church in front of us, which for most of us is First Baptist Conroe. Now what does First Baptist Conroe need from each of us? That's what we're gonna talk about today. Chapter four of verses one through 16 is where Paul talks about what it takes to grow the church. So let's read that passage, verse one of chapter four. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. 
In saying he ascended, what does this mean except that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the work of the saint, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love." Notice that phrase, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. That is Jesus. Jesus is the head of every local church that preaches him as Lord. Now, when I was in college, I I didn't yet feel called to the ministry. I, I believed that my destiny was to be, well, basically calling the Super Bowl. I wanted to go into sports broadcasting and I got the job of a lot, I got the opportunity of a lifetime. Uh, I got a chance to be an unpaid intern at Channel 13 in the sports department. I'd grown up watching those guys, Bob Allen and Tim Melton, my whole life and now I was working with them. Every, every Tuesday and Thursday after class, I would go and, and just hang out there until 10.30. Uh, I got to meet famous athletes, I got to go to games. It was I didn't earn a dime, but it was the best job I've ever had outside the ministry. I loved it. One day, a member of the Houston Oilers came in. Those of you who are young, there was a pro football team once that actually won once in a while. Still didn't go to the Super Bowl, story of our lives, but this guy was a member of the Oilers, and he was the largest human being I had ever seen at that point in my life. He came walking through the door, and he looked like he could barely fit through the door. He was just a massive man. And then his wife came through the door. She was the opposite of him. If she'd been a cheerleader, she would have been on the top of the pyramid, a little tiny woman. They made a real contrast. And then their little boy was with them who was about a year and a half to two years old. And I know it's rude to make fun of the physical appearance of a toddler, but this kid had the biggest head I've ever seen. I mean, from neck down, he was a normal two-year-old, neck up, full-grown adult male head. I mean, it was, he looked like a lollipop with feet. I don't know how he was able to stand. And I thought, when I saw him, I thought, that kid's gonna be big. He is gonna be a big man someday. He's not gonna grow up to be like his little tiny mom. He's gonna outweigh her by the time he's in third grade. Now, thanks to the magic of the internet, because this has been many years ago, I decided this week, I'm gonna look this kid up and see if I was right. And I did, because I remembered his name. I Googled him, I found him, and yeah, he played college football at 6'4", 264 pounds. I say that's big, okay? That's big to me. So my prophecy came true. Now, why do I bring this up? Because the scriptures say we're supposed to grow into our head, and our head is Christ. And right now, as a church, And I'm not just saying this to pick on us as First Baptist Conroe. This is true of every church I've ever been a part of. We resemble that little boy. Massive head, puny body. I mean, we don't function like Jesus does. We don't act like Jesus does. But imagine if you will. Imagine, can you imagine if Jesus himself 
appeared on the streets of downtown Conroe today and just took up residence here for three years. Do you think Jesus in the flesh would make a difference in Montgomery County with all our hundreds of thousands of people? Do you think he would make a difference? Absolutely. But think about it. Scriptures tell us there are actually dozens of physical representations of Jesus. Jesus is present physically in Montgomery County here and at First United Methodist and at Sacred Heart Catholic and at First Assembly of God and at every church that proclaims Christ as Lord. There are dozens of versions of Jesus on the ground right now in Montgomery County. The only problem is we're toddlers. Just toddling along with our massive head, not yet grown into it. So imagine what happens when we all grow into our head. Imagine what happens when there are dozens of full-grown, functioning Jesus Christs walking and living and loving in the midst of all these people who need him. And that's the goal and that's the dream. How do we get there? How do we get there? How do we grow into our head? You know, the truth is I've been a pastor most of my adult life and that means I've read a lot of books about church growth. And most books about church growth, I don't know if you know this or not, but there's a great cottage industry about church growth books. All the guys on staff know this because I've forced them to read some of them. Um, and most of them are not worth it. Most of them, I'll, I'll tell you what they are. They're, you know, Joe Preacher who grew his church from 10 people to 1,000 people or from 100 people to 10,000, he writes a book that says, here's how I did it. And what works at his church isn't gonna work at our church. It just, it's a waste of time. Most of those books are not worth the paper they're printed on. They're vanity projects at best. All you really need to know about church growth is found in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Because those books can tell us how to grow numerically. And some of those tricks actually work. And I'm glad to be in a church right now that is growing numerically. That's exciting. That is one metric that you can say, hey, that's good. But you know what? Adolf Hitler had, a, had an easy time drawing a crowd and that did not make his work worthy. So growing numerically is not the measurement, is not the metric we wanna pay attention to. Real church growth is growing into the image of Christ. How do we make that happen? There are two things that we need to do, every one of us individually. I'm giving you the points off the top. You ready? Make unity a priority and do our part. Those two things. So let's talk about making unity a priority. Verses four through six that we just read, some of the most beautiful things that have ever been written. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I mean, Paul's a great writer, but even he outdoes himself. And it's not just beautiful words. What he's saying is, God's people have to be one. You don't just come. You don't, you're not just attending an event. You're not just part of an organization. We have to be one. We have to love each other. That is our calling. Do you know the night Jesus was arrested and later crucified, he was the only one in the world who knew what was about to happen? You know what he was thinking about? He was thinking about us being one. We know that because the Apostle John has given us a record of what Jesus said to the disciples as they were on their way up the, the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's found in John chapters 13 through 17. And he says over and over again in one way or another, I want you to love each other. Well, a new command I give you, love one another. And then he stops and he prays this long high priestly prayer in John 17. And he says, Lord, make them one. Father, make them one. Just as you and I, Father, are one. That's what Jesus wants from us. That's what makes him happy. And, and the truth is we're not known for unity. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, because if you're not from a small town, you may not pay attention, but I am. 
And I know that in every little town in Texas and probably all across the South, you could go to a town of 1,200 people and you'll find one Catholic church, one Lutheran church, one Methodist church, five Baptist churches. Why is that? It's not because we're great church planters. It's because we don't get along with each other. I'm not proud of that. I mean, we can laugh at it because it's stupid and you laugh at stupid things and that's what I don't like about it. Now, I'm proud of my heritage in the Baptist church. Baptists taught me about Jesus. Baptists do a lot of things right that I'm glad to be a part of, but that's something that we need to change. You know the old joke, right? About the Baptist who uh, was the only survivor of a plane crash in the Pacific, washed up on a desert island and a couple of years later they rescue him and they say, okay, sir, we don't understand because you're the only one here, but there are three huts here on the beach. And he says, well, yeah, that's easy. I, this is where I live and this is where I go to church. And they said, well, what about that third one? He said, well, that's where I used to go to church. <laughs> why? And that's why Paul writes and he says, as a prisoner of the Lord, therefore, why is Paul reminding them at this specific moment, I am writing right now from prison because he wanted them to recall why is Paul in prison? It's not just because he preached the gospel. Paul was in prison specifically. You look at Acts, you look at the book of Acts. Paul was arrested and in prison the first time because his Jewish, his fellow Jews thought he was trying to bring Gentiles into the temple. Why did they think that? It wasn't true. Because they knew that everywhere Paul went, he made Jew and Gentile one. He made, he made racial distinctions irrelevant. He brought different kinds of people together in one house and they didn't like that. And that's why Paul was in prison. So what, what Paul is saying when he says, as a prisoner of the Lord, therefore, he's saying, I practice what I'm about to preach. I have given my life to make God's people one. Now pay attention to what I'm about to say. And he says, we need to follow, we need to pursue these three qualities if we're gonna be unified. And this is in verse two. He says, we need to have humility which is the, the art of, of forgetting about yourself. It, we have to practice gentleness, which is being strong, but, but controlling your strength, not using it to hurt somebody else. And we need patience. We need patience to be able to put up with one another and not blow little things out of proportion. You know, ironically, I've been married a long time now, even longer than I've been a pastor, and I, those are the three qualities I most need in my marriage, and, and she needs, for sure. Humility, just this ability to say, I'm gonna put you ahead of myself. Gentleness, I mean, I, I think she would gladly tell you, I'm physically stronger than her, but that, that doesn't need to come into play when we disagree. She knows things she could say to me that would just bring me to my knees, but she doesn't do that, why? That's gentleness. It's one of the reasons we're still married. Patience, it takes patience to live with someone and to make that work. Great patience. And those qualities that make any relationship function are necessary within the church. And none of those things come naturally to us. You have to pursue those things through the spirit of Christ. Are you pursuing those things? Are you growing in those things? Verse three, he says, you need to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain is one word in Greek. It's the word spudazo. And the reason I tell you that is because it's a word that in Greek means urgency. It's like I, I am focused on one thing and one thing only, and that is maintaining the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And I, when I think about this, I think about when Carrie and I had been married a year and I felt called to the ministry because get, get this, she did not marry a minister. She married somebody who was you know, gonna be rich and famous someday and then I announced to her the ultimate bait and switch. No, 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 God's calling me to the ministry. Ha ha, you're married, too late. Um, and, and so we had to go off to seminary in Fort Worth 
And we, we lived, our first house was this little seminary housing. It was, it was a 600 square foot uh, duplex with hardwood floors. And the most expensive thing we owned was a wedding gift from a, a wealthy friend of her family. And it was a Waterford crystal pitcher. Some of you ladies perhaps know what Waterford means. It's expensive stuff. And, and so this little pitcher, which is the nicest thing we owned, we would put it, we put it on this little bookshelf in the hallway, the narrow little hallway that led from our bedroom to our bathroom. And I remember one day I woke up and I was just kind of lumbering towards the bathroom and I ran right into that bookshelf. And in slow motion, I saw that glass pitcher fall off of that top shelf. And it did not break because it wasn't yet my time to die. <laughs> but it hit the ground and it bounced several times and it made the, the awfulest noise. And I turned immediately and looked back at the bed where my wife was just a second ago dead asleep and saw her levitating three feet above the sheets, right? And, and thinking to herself, I, I don't believe in divorce, but murder is on the table. And, and from then on, let me tell you, I was careful walking past that bookshelf. Every time I took great care. And that's what Paul's saying here. Take great care. You know, I, I'm grateful to tell you that there is great unity in this church, a church of this size. I don't know of any big controversies that are going on right now, and I don't know of any terrible divisions that are going on right now. There may be some, but, but this is a, a unified and loving church, and yet, and yet, that is such a fragile thing. And we talked a couple of weeks ago about how important it is that we stand up for the truth and we don't back down from the truth. And yes, it is. It is equally as important that we make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. It is mentioned in every book of the New Testament. That's how it is important it is to God. So we need to ask ourselves these questions. Am I a part of any dispute that's going on in my church right now? Do I complain about or criticize any church members behind their backs? Oh no, I would never do that. We all do that. We need to stop. Uh, is there anyone to whom I need to apologize? Don't be proud. Be the bigger person. Go first and say, I caused this. It's my fault. Uh, are there any disputes or divisions that I can serve as a peacemaker? Don't just be content with the fact that you're not causing trouble. Be the one who makes peace between brothers and sisters who are fighting. Am I praying regularly for unity in the church? That's a, a sincere question. Are you praying for that? You should be. And am I part of a small group? We call them life groups here. Am I learning to love others in the church? This is why, let me tell you why this is important. Because unity is more than just getting along. Back in the, the early part of the 20th century, the first half of the 20th century, uh, Sam Rayburn was the Speaker of the House of Representatives. He's not just a guy they named a lake after in East Texas. He's a guy who was really the most powerful man in this country for a while because he made presidents tremble. And then he came down with terminal cancer. And he had retired from the, from the Congress and he moved back to his hometown of Bonham, Texas. Some of you know where that is. And all of his friends, all of his fellow congressmen and senators, they said, Sam, the best hospitals in the world are right here. Why would you go to some little town in the middle of nowhere? He said, I'll tell you why. Because in Bonham, they know when you're sick and they care when you die. And every single one of us you may not need it now, 
that every single one of us is gonna need that someday. They're gonna, we're gonna need people to walk alongside of us that are gonna know when we're sick and care when we die and care when we're not in church and, and care when we're struggling and be there for us. This morning in our early service, we sang an old, old hymn and there's a line from it that this morning it just got me. It just, it just brought me to tears. Uh, Jesus bore the burden for our shame and, and suffered and died alone. Suffered and died alone. In a moment when we take the Lord's Supper, we remember Jesus, nobody could go with him to that cross. He did it by himself. And the, the great thing about that is because of that, none of us ever needs to do anything alone again. No struggle you ever face in the future should you ever feel alone, not just because God is with you, but because the body of Christ should be with you. There should be people in your life group who walk with you through your pain and suffering, who weep alongside of you, who, who you know are praying. You don't even have to call, you know they're praying. And if that's not happening now, that's one more sign we haven't grown into our head. And then do your part. Let's go to that point. How do we do our part? How do we each do our part? Verse 16 tells us that the body of Christ only grows when each part is working properly. Think about an Olympic athlete. They train for years. Their muscles are finely honed. All their skills are sharp. Their eyes are 20-20. Their lungs are powerful because they've been running. They've been, they've been working out. Everything is just right. But if one little unseen organ stops functioning, their kidneys quit filtering, or their spleen goes out of whack. All those well-toned muscles won't make a difference at all. Every part of the body has to be functioning in order for the body to do what it's called to do. This is what a lot of folks forget and, and miss is every member of the body matters. Last week we looked at that. So, so first of all, when I say do your part, I mean, number one, live out your calling. God has given you a role to play within this church and within his kingdom. And when you're functioning in, in the way you're, you're called to, when you're doing your part and fulfilling the calling that God has placed on your life, then that makes us stronger. Verse seven says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That grace he's talking about there is not saving grace. He's talking about the gift he has given you, the spiritual gift, the superpower, you might say, that way that you have of serving God and blessing others that nobody else can do in exactly the same way you can. And this is what people miss because when we look at a church, we judge it, we tend to judge it by the pastor. So if we see a church that's growing and, and is healthy and is doing great things, we say, oh, well, they must have a really great pastor. And that's not always the case. I mean, it's true that they have a good pastor. They have a pastor who's doing what he's called to do. But I've been in churches that were just doing incredible things for God. And then I sat through a worship service and thought, well, that wasn't great. I mean, I wasn't impressed. That wasn't anything, you know, spectacular. That's because the church isn't growing because of the pastor. There are more dynamic pastors in the community than him. They're more talented, more gifted. He's doing what he's called to do. But what made that church healthy was everyone in the church is functioning. Everyone in the church is doing their part. That's what makes a church great. In the same way, you can have the best, most talented staff on earth. You can have programs that are just fantastic, but it won't make a difference if everyone's not doing their part because that's how the body grows. 
The body grows as each part does its part. Verse 11, 12 says it this way. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. In other words, God calls certain men and women to be leaders in the church. Why? To grow the church? No. No. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. If I do my job, the church may or may not grow numerically. If I do my job, this is what will happen for sure. You will be equipped to do what God has called you to do. So do your part, fulfill your calling. But secondly, grow into spiritual maturity. See, you're not just worker bees in God's hive. Aren't you glad that your purpose is not just to serve? Your purpose is also to grow into the image of Christ. And you grow into spiritual maturity, you bless the whole church. Let me explain why I say that. Verse 13 says it this way, we are to become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then you will no longer be infants. When we're born again, we start off as babies. We're not supposed to stay there. When I went off to college, I, I made one really good decision. I applied for the, the honors program at U of H. And I got in, not because of my grades. Frankly, I was a very average high school student because I was lazy. But I happened to be a good test taker. And so they saw my ACT and they said, oh yeah, we'll let you in. And that was such a blessing because I was around all these students who were my age who took their studies seriously. And so they were studying every night until about 10.30. And so I studied too. And they talked about things. I mean, I had friends in high school. In high school, we talked about girls, sports, cars, and guns. That's about it. Not necessarily in that order, but you know. In college, we talked about other stuff. There's more to life. And it raised the bar for me intellectually in a way that I had good instructors at college. I'm thankful for them. But the people I was with made the biggest difference. Now, here's why I bring that up. The church is supposed to be like that. A church is supposed to be a place where you're around people who stretch you, who you look at and you say, well, I wanna, I wanna be like her. I, I want what, what I see in him. I, wanna, I want that love and that joy and that peace and that patience and that kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control because those are the fruit of the spirit and I see them in her and in him and I don't have that in my life so I wanna find that. Unfortunately, too many churches are more like a kindergarten than the honors program at a university and nothing against kindergarten. I, I've never met a, a kid who didn't love kindergarten but we don't wanna stay there. And in too many churches, we're like, no, 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 I, I still need you to poke the little straw into the juice box for me. And, and hey, when's, when's recess? We're supposed to get recess. And I, I want nap. I want nap. That's what the sermon is, right? I, I want nap. Um, and and I, I want you to do something about Bobby because he just stole my cupcake and I saw him put a June bug in Susie's hair. And so I need for you to step up and do this for me. And that's how most churches are when they should be places where we're constantly raising the bar. And what I'm saying is that when you decide to take your faith seriously and to grow in Christ, which is your destiny, by the way, you're not destined to stay where you are, 
When you grow in Christ, not only does it bless and benefit you, not only do you experience more of life the way it was meant to be lived, but you're starting to raise the bar for the rest of us because a rising tide lifts all boats, right? When one of you just starts to grow in your faith, that's gonna just ripple throughout the whole congregation. So grow in maturity and, and, and you will help us grow as a church. Now, tell me if you've heard this before. There's this saying, and you'll see it when you go to antique shops and you're looking for those signs and you know, you, you've, you've reached that stage in life where you think you need those signs that say live, laugh, love in your living room or whatever. Um, you know, gather or whatever. Um, and then there'll be one that says, and I quote, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Anybody heard that? Anybody heard that saying? Yeah, you see it in those. And they say it's attributed to Francis, St. Francis of Assisi, but he actually never said that. People who studied his life say there's no record of him saying that. Moreover, he would never have said that because he was a preacher. One thing preachers like to do is tell people about Jesus. They don't like to say, I'm just gonna live a really good life and let you guess why. No, he was a preacher of the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? What is the good news that people need to hear? The good news is that God took on flesh. In a moment, we're gonna peel this little slip of whatever this is off and, and there's a piece of bread in there and it represents the fact that Jesus became physical. He wasn't before, but he became physical for us. Why? You know, there are stories in other man-made religions about God's taking on human form. And they come down and they do impressive things and they put on a show. But the one true God, he took on human flesh to die. That's how we know it's real. That's the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus looked at us and said, you can't make it, so I'm gonna do it for you. I'm gonna do what you couldn't do. I'm gonna live the life that you should have lived and I'm gonna die the death that you deserve to die so that you can come in. He suffered and died alone so that we would never have to be alone. That's the good news. And because it's true, because it's true, we have this burning desire to say thank you. And the best way we can say thank you is, is to heed that command he gave to young Francis all those years ago, repair my house. When you're committed to his body, his bride, the way he was, when you do your part, when you love the unity of his people and guard it and treasure it, that is a thank you to him that he receives as an act of worship. What can you do to make us better? Just leave you with this. Ask yourself the question, if everyone in this church was as committed and mature as I am, where would our church be? There's a whole lot of Christians in this country, and this is part of our problem, who are glad to be freeloaders in the body of Christ like an earlobe. What would happen if you lost your earlobe? Just no place to put your earrings, right? There's a lot of Christians like that. They don't really serve a function, but they've got a destiny. If everyone was as committed and as mature as you, where would we be?